If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have been in this series for a few weeks now, looking at Paul's exhortations to the, second Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians in the second letter that he's written to them. You'll remember, or if this is your first time with us in this series, that the gospel came to Thessalonica with great effect. He said that they received the word as it really is, the word of God. And it worked speedily among them. They went from being pagan idolaters to examples all throughout Macedonia of what it looked like to follow Christ, even in the midst of persecution. And the gospel came to them in the midst of much hostility, in the midst of much false teaching to the contrary. And so last week we looked at signs of Jesus' coming and faithfully enduring to the end. Today's message is in the last part of this chapter, verses 13 through 17. We're going to be looking at standing firm with good hope through grace. So you'll see some overlap. Last week we talked about enduring faithfully. This week we're talking about enduring faithfully. Standing firm with good hope through grace. Now, reminder, the first part of chapter 2, Paul's writing to them that they would not be quickly shaken or alarmed by the false teaching that was going around saying that the day of the Lord was at hand or had already come, that Jesus' return was so imminent, it was actually leading people to faithlessness, to the exact opposite of what Jesus taught us about his return, which was for the master to find us faithfully obeying him when he comes. People were quitting their jobs. They were mooching off of one another and they were, had this mentality of, well, what does it matter? The day of the Lord is here. Jesus is coming. It's right around the corner. And Paul says, I told you these things when I was with you, that these things have to happen first. There's going to be the man of lawlessness, the antichrist who appears, and there's going to be a great falling away, a great apostasy where people that you knew and walked with who profess Christ fall away from the living God. And it's a very sobering reality. We also saw last week that this mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the world. That all the time there are lowercase a antichrists in the world spewing false teaching and false doctrine, preaching different Christs who are not the true Christ, the true gospel, that we have received from God's word. They twist the scriptures, the Bible says, to their own destruction. And people follow them into their error. And Paul is describing that in their world, much like ours today, there are many, most, who do not love the truth. They don't welcome the truth because they instead take pleasure in unrighteousness. And because they want their sin more than the truth of Christ and his gospel, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. And just how Romans 1 says that God gives people over to what they wanted more than him. Last week we saw that in this case, God sends a strong delusion on people who reject his mercy, reject his grace. He sends on them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false as a form of his judgment. And so that's been chapter two leading up into the text that we're in this morning. And we have been seeing, and I want to remind you this morning, that this battle for the souls of men and women is happening at the level of faith and desire, and has massive implications on daily living. This battle for your heart is happening at a level of what you believe and what you want. And what you want can lead you away from what is true and from a right belief. But your life flows from theology and faith. Your works and your words reveal at any given point in time what you are truly believing about God in that moment. That's so important as a premise for us this morning, that 
what you believe about God comes out through the actions of your life and through your words. So we can profess or claim to believe one thing, but if our actions and our words point to something else, we have a different gospel. So Paul has explained what is true to them. He's been describing what's happening in the world and what will happen to those who leave Christ for another gospel. And then now he's turning to address them in the same spirit of don't be alarmed, don't be quickly shaken, don't go after that gospel that's swirling about, don't go after that rumor that the day of the Lord has already come. We're confident concerning better, thing, better things concerning you, says the writer of Hebrews, right? So he's, he's now turning back to them in that same spirit, and we're going to pick up in verse 13. So if you're physically able, stand in honor of the reading of God's word. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Remember, he just finished saying that God sends a deluding spirit on those who reject Christ and his truth in order that they may be condemned who did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, whether by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So the heart of the text this week, if you have one main takeaway is because our hope in Christ is sure. We must stand firm in God's grace and in his word on the road of sanctification. Because our hope in Christ is sure, then it has this implication on us, this obligation that we have to stand firm in God's grace and in his word on the road of sanctification. So that's where we're headed this morning. I want to pray for us and ask for God to move in our hearts. Father, we thank you for your living word. Lord, who are we that we get to sit beneath it again to hear your voice again? Your voice thunders in the heavens and breaks the cedars in two and comes to those who are humble and contrite in spirit who tremble before it. Lord, would you find us here Humble, broken over our sin, floored by your grace. Speak to us, Father. I pray that you would transform us by your word and bless those who have come, even in the midst of having other things that they could do. Would you honor the fact that they have chosen to come here to sit under your living word? Speak to us, Father and be honored by our worshipful response. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're, we're going to start by looking at the main imperative, the main command, and then we're going to work our way backwards to the truths to stand on. So if you have little paragraph headers in your Bible, you might see something about standing firm or holding fast, but the, the whole thrust of these paragraphs that we're in this morning is found in verse 15, where Paul's saying, so then, brothers, in light of everything that I just said about you, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So this is Paul's great exhortation to them in the midst of false teaching and false gospels. It would be his exhortation to us in the midst of 
all the false Christs and false gospels and twisting of the word that's happening all around, you stand firm in the truth of the gospel and the traditions that we have handed down to us from the apostles, the apostolic tradition. So we're talking about everything that we have in God's word and what we've received from the apostles as the foundation layer of the church. If it does not align with apostolic teaching and what we have in the word of God, then we reject it as falsehood and we align our lives to the truth. And this is life and death that are at stake in these words. This is written to believers, but he's saying believers hold fast to the truth. In Galatians, Paul writes to them and he says he's astonished that they're so quickly deserting the true gospel for another gospel. He says not that there really is another one, verse 7 of Galatians 1, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There is a gospel, one, that was once for all delivered to the saints. It came through the Holy Spirit, was manifest in Christ Jesus. He revealed himself and gave his apostles words that are written here. And this word for tradition is, it usually has a negative connotation everywhere else. The Pharisees and the scribes had traditions of men that they exalted above the word of God. But it means this truth that's handed off, these oral traditions. They would take truth and they would pass it on and it was meant to be passed on from believer to believer. And so Paul says, you want to know what it looks like to be a believer. Hold fast to the gospel that we delivered to you. And if anybody comes to you with a different gospel, they are going to hell. And if you believe it, it will lead you there. This is not a minor issue. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, which we've established, we've living in since the ascension of Christ, said people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, unholy, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So saying there are coming days where people look like Christians. They have the appearance of godliness, but it is all shadow and no substance. Inwardly, they love themselves, they love money, they love, they're proud and arrogant and they're unholy and they love pleasure rather than loving God. It's the same thing that Paul's saying in 2 Thessalonians. They refused to love the truth because they took pleasure in unrighteousness. It is a mixing of the truth of the gospel and the call to take up your cross and die to yourself and follow Jesus with well, I don't really have to die. I just want Jesus plus me. And it is a different gospel. Now, the problem is you can find, especially today, teaching that will conform to the gospel that you want to believe. I was joking around with brother-in-laws who were here. They ran this race with me yesterday, and we were talking about what to eat the night before. And I said, I found a website that says you can eat whatever you would normally eat the night before. I kind of searched around until I found it, you know, because some of them had a lot to say. But I found one that was like, no, 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 just eat whatever you want. I was like, my man, right? That happens with regards to truth. You can find a version of people who use the Bible will require zero change to your life. It won't look like taking up your cross and following Jesus. They twist the scriptures. And if you love yourself and you're a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God, I'm sure the rich young ruler could go find a teacher who would not tell him to sell all that he had and not tell him this is what it looks like to surrender and follow Christ. And he could latch on to that gospel and believe that he's following the risen Christ all the way. 
you do not want to get to that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name? Didn't we follow you? I was in church every Sunday. I was listening to that guy teaching. And the Lord says, I never knew you. You went after a different gospel. So that's why Paul says, even if we, listen, believers, Rivertown, if we preach to you from this pulpit a gospel contrary to what has been delivered to us by the apostles once and for all, then go find a different church. It's serious. You can find preaching that is in accordance with what you want to hear online, on social media. Paul in the next chapter said the same to Timothy. People will have itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teacher to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But this is where I want to give you this glorious hope and reality. Because the truth is, is that for all who have been called to Jesus Christ and have been united to him by faith, this is the glorious reality that accompanies these exhortations to the church to stand firm. All who are in Christ by the grace of God will stand firm to the end. And they will hold fast. The Lord Jesus says gloriously of you, of all that the Father has given to me, I don't lose one of them. There's, this is not an exhortation to hold on and by the strength of you holding, you will secure your salvation. But you need to know that on the road of salvation, all who are his do hold on and stand firm. He keeps us. He's the one that gives us the grace to hold fast. But this is where our principle of grace-fueled effort from two weeks ago applies here. That we are laboring hard and we are striving with all the energy that he produces in us to stand firm and hold on. So his grace is everywhere, before us, behind us, enabling us, and the exhortations come to you. He says, so then, in light of all this beautiful and amazing, wondrous grace everywhere, you stand firm, beloved. You do it. <clears throat> David <laughs> gave me a couple verses to slide in. These, these verses made it by the grace of God about five minutes before. So thank you, Townsend. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Listen to this. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There is an intellectual mental ascent that believes on Christ as a historical figure, believes that Christ's blood is sufficient to save you from your sins, actually ask this Jesus into your heart because somebody told you that you should, actually gets baptized and actually really is belief in vain because it wasn't truly surrender and faith from the heart. And every single person who is united to Christ by faith because of the grace of God holds fast and holds fast to the end. So I have uh, a video I want to show you as an example. Um, and this is from our own Tim Lawrence. I don't even think it has audio to it, but I just want to give you a visual of this kind of holding fast. This is Tim, actual Tim, out in Washington. I don't know if any of you would do this. I hope that you would not. And He's trying to ruin my sermon illustration because you see him like kind of not holding on. And then he gets to these oh no moments and he holds on tighter. And then he like kind of lets go and sticks his arms out and acts like he's all free and not holding on. But in the midst of him looking like he's not holding on, there are these cables around him, underneath him, surrounding him. His, even when he's doing this Superman number, he's got his feet locked in and he's got bruises on the backs of his legs from how tightly these cables we're holding on to him. Now, there are other places that he could have positioned himself in this plane where he would not have held fast. He put himself in position to be held by what was holding on to him even when he was not holding on. Does that make sense? 
he did not survive this because of the strength of his grip, but because of the strength of those cables that were holding him. He put himself in the midst of it and got netted in it all around. And so in the same way, you are not saved by the strength of your grip on Christ, but by the strength of his grip on you. But you are called to stand firm and position yourself in his truth so that it surrounds you all around and holds you fast. And when the wind and the waves of every other kind of teaching and doctrine come around, you are steadfast. So last week we talked about loving the truth and getting doctrinal ballast into your boat, which is where I want to head now. We're, but, all right, I'm jumping ahead. So this is all part of you doing everything, like Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 6. This is all part of you doing everything to stand firm. He says, you do all to stand firm. You put on the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. You be strong in the Lord, but it's his might that's giving you the strength. You put on the armor of God. He supplied you with the armor. You didn't manufacture a piece of it, but your faith came with it and it's yours to dawn for the glory of God and your own safety and survival in the faith. And he describes putting that on as you having done all to stand firm. Meaning there is a part for you to play and it is possible for you not to do all to stand firm. So he supplied us with his grace to stand firm in it. And before I jump ahead to this truth to stand on, man, I was about to skip this whole part. Um, and it would, the rest of the message would not make any sense. So praise the Lord. Um, I, as you think about standing firm in the Lord, I want you to think about roots that go down deep. And the contrast between shallow roots that have no good soil to sink into versus trees, versus a Psalm 1-like man or woman who meditates in God's word day and night. And are, it's like a tree firmly rooted by streams of water and bears fruit in every season because the roots are down deep into the truth of God's word. I was running yesterday and we were about to get to this uh, rings obstacle or monkey bars or something like that and they're usually pretty slippery and you can fly off pretty easily so I reached down to grab a piece of grass to kind of get my to rub my hands on it and I tried to grab like a couple blades and this whole tuft just pulled right up like the whole thing I like it was carrying a bush because it, it didn't have any roots in it it was rocky soil and the roots didn't go down deep but you tried to go do that to one of the trees in the garden of Gethsemane these olive trees that have been there for a thousand, two thousand years, they have weathered wars and famines and generations and they stay there steadfast through storms. They're still there. And I even read that olive trees have the ability, you can chop them down at the trunk and if their roots are still there, they have the ability to grow back. So they have no idea if even the ones that only date back a thousand years are actually the same tree that have been there since the time of Christ. Chopped down, used for firewood, but because their roots are down deep, they grow back. And so that's what we're talking about is being firmly rooted by holding fast to the gospel and the apostolic traditions that we have received in the word of God. And that kind of rooting does not happen overnight. That little tuft that I pulled out yesterday, that might've been an overnight plant. But if you want roots that go down deep, you want to stand in that day, it will be because of the rooting that you are doing now, using what God has given you to be rooted as you day in and day out abide in God's word and you love his truth and you come and are transformed by the word of God, your roots grow deeper. You bear more fruit you grow up into maturity and all of a sudden the things that used to tempt or distract you aren't as tempting or distracting anymore. Now, we are talking about standing firm in the midst of deceiving doctrines that are going around. God calls them deceiving. So you could get swept away if you don't hold fast to the truth. But I was thinking about, I was reading an article that was talking about 
martyrs that have given up their life for the sake of the gospel, looking at what they actually faced. And I was thinking how I think we're probably a lot like Peter, like, Lord, I would never, never deny you. But until that moment comes, how do you know that you're going to encounter opposition at the highest level if you can't say no to yourself when it comes to sin and temptation today? How are you going to say no to yourself and all of a sudden have really strong roots when it comes to the ultimate test on that day? And so I want to give you truth to stand on from the beginning parts of this passage. This is ballast for your boat. This is when it says later, God who has loved us, he's given us, the, the language he uses, he's, he's uh, gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. That is what we're going into at the beginning of this passage. It's the eternal hope and good, and good comfort by the grace of God. But the writer of Hebrews says, it's good for you to be strengthened, strong roots, by grace and not by foods that perish with coming and going. And so I want to look with you at what Paul says about them, knowing that he says the same about you for a greater steadfastness and a standing firm together today and in that day. So the first thing that he says about them in verse 13, as he's contrasting them with the unbelieving world or the unbelieving visible church that's apostatizing and going after the world, he's saying, but not you. And the first thing that he calls them is brothers beloved by the Lord. And so this is going to be like strong root number one for you. You are loved by God. This is their fundamental identity and why sometimes I call you, even with dudes in the audience, beloved. Because I want you to hear the same language that Scripture speaks over you, that you are dearly loved by God. And that is true of you at the bottom before you did anything to earn his favor or before you have done anything to lose it. So what he says fundamentally true about you is that the God of the universe apart from anything that you could do to earn it or lose it, has set his love on you specifically before your present circumstances could try to convince you otherwise. You were the specific object of divine love. He knew all that you would be and all that you would do. And he loved you anyways. It's like J.I. Packer is known for saying, God justified you with his eyes wide open. This is a trustworthy statement. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners because in this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us, to be the satisfaction of God's wrath that we deserved for our sin. And instead of us experiencing the sentence of death that we deserve, God appointed from before the foundation of the world that Christ would come and die in your place so that if anyone believed on him, they would not perish but have eternal life. Charles Wesley wrote in the song that we sing often, and can it be? that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This root of the love of God sinks deep into humble soil. It, It sinks deep where there is a knowledge of my own sinfulness and unworthiness. If you love yourself and esteem yourself highly, then God's love for you will seem like no big deal. I'm glad that God loves me. I love me too. 
But if you know yourself to be as sinful as you really are, then this is staggering. And it's why when Paul talks about being rooted and grounded, he talks about being rooted and grounded in the love of God. Ephesians 3, Paul says, He bows his knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is how God sanctifies you, how God gives you grace to stand. Listen to this, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Your standing firm and your sanctification must be laden with the knowledge of God's love for you, for you to be firmly rooted. But for each of these that Paul talks about, then we want to look at, all right, so how does this root us? How, what, this yields the strength of what? The love of God yields the strength of joy and confidence in you. And you could have as discussion after this, what are some other, what are some other ways that the love of God strengthens us? There's a litany more. But I want you to consider this. The knowledge of God's specific love for you gives you joy and confidence. You don't need to go look for love or joy or satisfaction in all the other things that the enemy brings to you to lead you away from Christ, those taking pleasure in unrighteousness, because you have everything that you need in the knowledge that you are loved and treasured by God. So when he comes with deceiving promises of prominence and notoriety or fulfillment from any lesser joy, you can reject them because you already have the greatest gift. And it gives you joy and confidence because you don't need to live for his love, but from it. It, it enables you to live a life that is receiving from God his love and lives in the overflow of gratitude for his love rather than living to obtain his love. It is a complete difference between self-righteous legalism and a life of gratitude and obedience and joy. The next thing that Paul says about them is that God chose them as the first fruits to be saved or first fruits could also mean from the beginning. So we're either talking about from the beginning, he's chosen you from before the foundation of the world. That is true of every believer. But he also chose them as the first fruits, meaning when the gospel came into Macedonia, the Thessalonians were among the first to have been rescued out of their idolatry and rescued into a reconciled relationship with God. Paul tells them in his first letter that he's confident of God's choice of them because of the way that they received the gospel that the gospel came to them in power and with full conviction, and it was proof by the way that they responded with real repentance and faith that God had truly chosen them from before the foundation of the world to be rescued by the gospel of God. This language of God choosing you is that God chose you for himself. He chose you to take you to himself. It was personal so that you would belong to him and he didn't choose you because of any neediness in God because he he wanted to take you to himself because he needed something without you and he didn't choose you because of any merit in your own of your own because you were somehow desirable but he chose you because of his lavish grace and kindness from before the foundation of the world Paul writes in Ephesians 1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, dearly loved of God, as because of his love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So how does that give you strong roots? When the enemy comes with a different gospel, when he comes with sin and temptation, or when you're faced with persecution in that day, how does the knowledge that you are chosen by God give you strength to your roots? It gives you security. You don't need to keep looking for salvation in some other gospel because we have found it here. And you don't have to be worried that you'll lose it because you did nothing to obtain it. If God called you to himself, not by works that you've done in righteousness, but according to his purpose and grace, then you don't have to be worried that you're going to lose it because it was never what you had obtained. He, he set his love on you and you cannot detract from that or seek to add to it. So rest. So rest and rejoice in his grace. That's what the knowledge of God's election and choice of you does. Cease striving and know that he's God. Worship him in the splendor of his holiness. You belong to him because he called you to himself and chose you. Not because of how you followed him this week. How you've added to his love this week. So then he says that he has destined us for salvation. So you see this, he chose you to be saved, or the language is to salvation. And he's emphasizing he has called you to all of it. We're not here just talking about justification when you first came to Christ, but he's called you to what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. He's called you to be being saved by the gospel. You have been justified in Christ when you place your trust in him and he brought you to life and made you a new creation. And now he is saving us as he is conforming us to the image of Christ. But he is also leading us to the day when we will at last be saved and will be transformed into the likeness of Christ by his appearance in glory. And that is what Paul has mainly in view in this passage. He chose you to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. We're coming back to that. Verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel, to this salvation and sanctification, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what God had appointed for them all by his grace, is that the God who chose them from before the foundation of the world would send messengers into the world with his gospel, proclaiming the outward call of God, saying, Christ has died the just for the unjust, so that he might bring you to God. And if anyone would repent and turn and place their trust in him, he will forgive you of your sins and give you the gift of eternal life. He has proven that God has accepted the Savior's sacrifice by raising him from the dead and he stands enthroned above all. And he calls everyone everywhere to repent. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He will pardon you. He will cleanse you of your iniquity and give you life everlasting and bring you into his presence forever with joy. But what Paul has in view here, and this is staggering, is we say this a lot, this language of, that they use in Passover, if it would have been enough. It would have been enough, God, if you had just done this, but you gave us even more grace and even more kindness. It would have been enough if he had just forgiven us of our sins. But he also gave us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And it would have been enough just to have the gift of his presence here with us in life and not to experience eternal death. But he gave us the gift of adoption as sons. But our certain future is that by the appearance of Jesus' coming, he's going to make you believer exactly like Christ. And he will bring you with him forever into his glory that he had with the Father before the world began, so that where he is, you might be also. That is what Paul refers to in his first letter about comfort one another with these words. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of trial, in the midst of a loved one dying, we will always be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. 
This is the eternal comfort and good hope through grace that he refers to in his prayer for them at the end of this passage. And so knowing that Jesus is bringing us with him into his glory forever yields the strength of perspective and hope and joy in our roots. Because faith in this certain reality of future grace is what helps us to say and to mean that the sufferings of this present life aren't worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. How do you say that and mean that? Not just when you're outside of suffering, but when you're mired in it. When Paul can look at the suffering all around and say these light and momentary afflictions are being used of God to produce for us that glory on that day. And because I have that day in view, I can call these sufferings that feel like they will drown me light and momentary. That is strength, and it is the strength of faith that takes God at his word and says, yes, I am going to fix my hope continually on the grace that's to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have my hope fixed there, and it gives me perspective in the midst of my circumstances wanting to try to convince me that God is not good or God is not just, but I know because I can look back at the cross and see his love and I can look ahead to glory and know that he has destined me for salvation and to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so right now I can say, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. And I've got this hope of being with Jesus forever. And it weighs more than what's weighty here. It's the last place for strengthening roots before we close with the prayer. Paul says that God chose them as the first fruits to be saved and that he chose them to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that happens through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. And all of your salvation happens that way, beloved. That the Holy Spirit sets you apart for himself for belief in the truth and you came to life. And that the Holy Spirit continues to set you apart for himself through belief in the truth and you grow in holiness and in Christ's likeness, and one day you will be set apart completely as those who have been glorified by the grace of God. This is grace upon grace, that we have been given the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, and that this charge to sanctification comes at us like these cables on the airplane where he says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you do not walk the road of sanctification, you have a different gospel. No believer looks at sanctification or holiness indifferently. Believers don't look at grace as a license to sin however they would like and to have some kind of confidence that they have the forgiveness of God while they are loving their sin more than Christ. Now, we all follow Jesus imperfectly and are going to stumble along the way, but there will be present in the heart of believers a fight against sin. There will be present in the heart of believers repentance and faith in a fight by the Holy Spirit, and he will be conforming us to the image of Christ and sanctifying us in the truth of his word. This is his whole purpose for you. When he's, that passage from Ephesians, when it said he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That you would be holy and blameless before him in love. And it's amazing that it's going to happen. It's awesome. He is going to complete the work that he started in you. And you can't change that. But his call to you on the road of sanctification and this full assurance that you are going to get there. You're going to be exactly like Jesus and with him in his presence forever. And since he will make you holy, 
He has called you to holiness and to pursue it now. So how does this strengthen our roots? It gives us the hope of the rewards of righteousness and where I want to camp out, assurance. Jesus said that you won't give someone a cup of cold water in his name without him seeing you and rewarding you. All the road of sanctification, every good work and word, like Paul writes about later, is seen by God in his promised reward as you take up his command to live your life in the will of God, by the Spirit of God, doing the works that he's called you to do, saying the words that he's called you to say, and all of them are seen by your heavenly Father. And even the ones that are done in secret that no one knows about, he will reward you. And so it gives us perspective to press on in every good work and every good word because our Father who sees in secret will reward us. But it also gives us this assurance that as you bear fruit in keeping with repentance and as you fight sin in the community of the church, you gain assurance that you have truly been united to Christ and are found in him. So these exhortations in the New Testament come to us all the time, right? Be sure, beloved, examine yourself and see whether you are really in the faith. See that it's this gospel that you have truly believed and you don't have a different version of Christ. And one day the church mourns and weeps because you went out from us for a different gospel. So this is the way that Paul, Peter writes about it in 2 Peter 1. And this is the last text that I want to camp out on and we're done. Peter had just finished writing to them that God has given us these precious promises and that by those promises and by growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, we actually become partakers of the divine nature. And that's not just some future promise for later. You are actually making gains in Christ-likeness and Christ being formed in you because of the way that you take up the promises and you fight and you press on to know him. But then he says, for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That means moral excellency. Make your life morally excellent upright, full of integrity, doing good in all the works that the Holy Spirit has given you to do, to walk in, and supplement virtue with knowledge. Be seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Listen to sermons. Immerse your life in the Word of God. Read books that stoke your heart to know God and to know His truth. Supplement the knowledge with self-control. You can't be seeking for Christ to increase while you're never decreasing. The way of the cross is that we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. And so we learn to control ourselves, not to love or take pleasure in unrighteousness, but instead to love the truth. We supplement self-control with steadfastness, standing firm, steadfastness with godliness, this piety, this devotion that gets up and seeks him and his kingdom first and lets everything else fall into place. Supplement godliness with brotherly affection and effect, brotherly affection with this unconditional sacrificial love. Now listen to this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, does their su supplementing their faith with these qualities gain them entrance? No. But does it give them the assurance that they will be 
welcomed with doors blown wide open because of Christ and his sufficiency and his grace? Yes. They make their calling and election sure by making every effort in sanctification. That your faith came with all of these things. And so supplement them, use them, put them to work, add to your faith all this moral excellency and godliness and steadfastness. And it is their commands given to you because they will not automatically happen. He has given you the grace to take them up and supplement your faith with them so that you have this assurance as you do so in the body of Christ. He loves me. He has chosen me. He has called me to salvation through sanctification to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can know and with confidence that that glory is coming because I am walking through this tunnel of sanctification that he has given as his appointed road for getting there. <clears throat> we don't even have time for this prayer for strength, and so I'm just going to read it for you as a benediction of sorts from this message. But Paul is praying for strength for holy living. He's praying for strength for them. He, he uses this word that God would strengthen them or comfort them and establish them. And the language for comfort is the same as the Holy Spirit being our helper. It's a paraclete. And it, it carries with it this helping, but also this exhortation. It drives you. It's not just like, may he just console you right where you are and let you stay there. But may God comfort you and help you and drive you to every good work and word. And may he establish them with his strength. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But with him, you can do all that he has appointed you to do. And you can press on so that every word and every work is good, sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And he uses you for his namesake to make his gospel known and to exalt Christ as you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and you can do so with confidence knowing we're confident concerning better things concerning you. These other people fall away or are quickly alarmed or quickly shaken, but not you. Not you, beloved. You have been dearly loved of God. You've been chosen by God. He's called you through sanctification to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. So stand firm. If his grace surrounds you like these cables of an airplane and he's holding you fast and he won't let you go, then you hold on and press on. And you stand firm. And may the Lord Jesus himself strengthen you to that end. May he help you all along the way until you see him face to face and you are with him forever.